we know that the readers really value them because we get loads and loads of feedback. You know, we get loads of emails back from them. I think one of the great things about a newsletter is that direct communication uh, with a with a writer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to AI Voices. We are the AI-focused podcast, apparently, that takes a look at all the news and the views from the AI world over the past week. Uh, I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard was from my conversation with Sarah Edna, Executive Editor and Head of Newsletters at the Financial Times. We spoke about her role leading the newsletter team at the FT, value of newsletters and subscriber acquisition and retention, but also as paid products in their own right. Very interesting conversation. Nice, but Esther, we have some news of our own, which is going to drop on Wednesday, don't we? Yes, it's the Publisher Podcast Awards shortlist this coming Wednesday the 15th, um, if you're listening before the 15th. Uh, so yeah, at 12 o'clock, uh, GMT, we are still GMT, aren't we? It's still mm-hmm. <laughs> at, at 12 <laughs> o'clock GMT, on Twitter, if you are still there and haven't fled because of Musk, uh, we'll be releasing <laughs> this year's Publisher Podcast shortlist. Um, if you have fled Twitter, don't worry, it'll be in your inbox shortly afterwards. So I think we'll probably include it in the newsletter the next morning. So there are plenty of ways to keep up to date. But if you want to like, get in on the live action, and we are on Twitter at Pod Awards. Fantastic. Very exciting times. But as you might have guessed from my intro, this week we're going to be talking about AI again. And we were just talking behind the scenes about the extent to which we have been talking about AI recently. Well, for context, this week we saw that Microsoft announced that uh, Bing is going to have ChatGPT4 built in. So it's invested $10 billion into OpenAI, the startup that created ChatGPT. And Bing is going to cite its sources and link to them in a learn more section at the end of its answers. So every result is going to include a feedback option and some queries, including those about shopping, will feature ads. So that is using ChatGPT both as information dissemination and also as revenue generation. But... Google's counterpart, Bard, didn't have such an easy ride for launch this week, did it, Esther? They had a very expensive launch. So mm-hmm. Google um, Google sort of scrambled to release Bard in the way of chat G- G- GPT. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, I keep want to say GTP, but I'm sure that's not. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah, they're, they're scrambled to try and get Bard out. Um, so they ran a series of ads this week demonstrating Bard um, in, in Google search and uh, somebody well quite a few people were quick to point out that it actually made a factual error um, I think somebody asked um, you know what, what can they tell their kids about this, uh, the James Webb telescope and it said oh the James Webb telescope discovered exoplanets it actually didn't um, mm. and a quick Google ironically would tell you that it didn't <laughs> a quick check um, on Google you could uh, and it basically caused the company to lose it was almost 10% that valued 10 billion dollars in market value on That's Wednesday <laughs> I think people are just like this is something that could have been so easily fact-checked by humans mm. um but this comes right back to what we were discussing a couple of weeks ago with um uh was it gosh i thought cnet was um yeah. using it wasn't it that if this is what's happening at the height of scrutiny when everybody's eyes are watching what's going on and you're still letting mistakes like that sit through personally it just feels like we're doomed <laughs> well let's just say this i i think we are at the start of a slope here and you know it's obviously going to get slope incredibly 
<laughs> we're not at the beginning of we're in the foothills of what AI is going to do. You know, we're seeing it make mistakes because it's not that sophisticated yet. I don't think we can discount the fact that it is going to get better and better and better. What I think we are seeing is this arms race almost from the search giants yeah. to deploy these search t- these search tools really quick, and that has led to that. You know less than perfect scrutiny of answers. Well, there's, there's another side to that Google share price story. And that is that Microsoft, for the first time in decades, will properly, properly challenge Google on the mm-hmm. search front. And, and analysts, money men and bean counters, they're looking at that stuff and going, oh, my God, this could there's, be an existential threat to Google. There's blood in the water here. Between that yeah. and Amazon, which has made some moves this week as well, yeah, absolutely. Um, this this so, is why I thought, um, I thought citation was quite interesting because Microsoft has said that Bing will, will cite a link to all its sources. Do you remember the early days of Wikipedia where you were told in school that like, you couldn't use Wikipedia because it was really unlikely and didn't cite anything? And Wikipedia kind of realised in order to kind of still be here in 20 years time they needed to improve that so now um you know any any fact on wikipedia that doesn't have a citation is is up for dispute and wikipedia is now an excellent source of, um, mm-hmm. of, well, of bibliographies and sources to um, be honest no one ever mentioned wikipedia when i was at school <laughs> <laughs> well we are media voices we are not ai voices mm. yet and so what we should be doing here to differentiate ourselves from everybody else is talking about how this is going to impact uh, media business models and media revenue. So, Peter, you, you mentioned Joshua Benson before. Yeah. What else did he say about how this is going to tr- fundamentally transform or have the potential to transform how the publishers are treated on the internet? Well, he, I mean, he, he went back to a conversation, I guess, in an interview that he had in 2011, um, where the, this idea of answers rather than links to answers was discussed in relation to Google. And and mm-hmm. with with these developments, whether it's Google or whether it's Bing, um, like basically they'll go off in lightning speed, bring a bunch of stuff together, condense it into one answer and display it without you having to link to that source, which is brilliant from a consumer point of view, right? You know, I've got this little answer capsule that I don't need to go anywhere else and actually I can then ask subsidiary questions and it'll just keep giving me the answers inside that that interface um, as Josh Bennett pointed out and as Cobus Hale pointed out on LinkedIn what the hell does that mean for publishers because yeah. there's no there's no traffic going to publishers sites, the the aggregation if you like, the, the answer is coming is being done by the algorithm away from the publisher site. So the traffic's not being sent through to the publisher site. So the publisher's not getting the traffic. If it's not getting the traffic, they're not getting the ad revenue. So, game <laughs> over. This depends on what kind of, I, and, and, and this is where I think Joshua Benton's quite right to say that it, it's difficult to tell us it's going to be a sort of 5% increase in, in how efficiently you get um, you get answers to this sort of thing, or is this going to be, you know, completely overturn the way that we use search. And it seems like if, you know, if there's a breaking news event and you want to find out more about the news event, um, you know, you want to find out, um, gosh, I haven't looked at the news for a few days, what's going on in the news. If you want to find out what's happened in the Turkey earthquake, mm. that's probably not the sort of thing that these that you're going to look for chat for, for these search engines to summarise in that way. You're going to, you still, I think you're still going to search to find a news site to find an article, or you're going to follow a news site and, and have got that. It's more stuff, um, some of the demonstrations I've seen have been things like um, 
I've, I've got a trip to Mexico booked. What are the top five things I should see? And that's where a lot of travel publishers and a lot of publishers will have articles on that sort of thing that these search engines will then just pull together lots of different things and summarise for you. And it, it sort of depends on what type of publisher you are and what type of search content you look to go for. There's an awful lot of them that have gone down this route of when is Love is Blind season four airing? And they will have an answer to that. And that is the sort of thing that these search engines will just start displaying at the top of it and have been doing for a while with snippets. You know, Google's been doing work for, for a decade on this to try and, yeah, try and move away from clicks. It wants to answer it for you at the top there. Yeah, obviously it does because then it keeps the revenue. Mm. If it's not sending you somewhere else, then it, it's got you on that page and it can display paid listings or it can display advertising. You know, basically, they control the, the, the real estate. I don't, I, I don't want to downplay how transformational this could be because it really could be and probably will be. But I've, I've gained such deja vu to us having this exact conversation oh. around voice search like Alexa. Like the publishers are being cut out of that. It's just displaying an answer. Is that, you know what I mean? It feels like a, a repeat a of that conversation. There's a difference because I, I was thinking about this. We started off the conversation. Actually, there are two differences. I think the first is that um, people have been very used to using Google as their search engine for what, mm. 20 years. Um, that behaviour to, to put in that input is is very normalised. Um, <laughs> voice never really overcame a lot of the issues with <laughs> accents. Yeah. Um, if you were American, it was great. If you were anybody else, it, it really could <laughs> I knew Peter was going to react. <laughs> and the second part of that is is the tech that powers it behind the scenes. Is that you know Alexa and Siri and all the others that they they were good tech, but then they are nothing compared to the stuff yeah. these these chatbots are spitting out. I mean, I think the the point, the real point with this is the benefit to consumers. Yeah. Um, because I you know, I think yes, right. I don't think the benefit to consumers was there with with voice searching. That was just a gimmick. So does that necessarily mean it undercuts publishers? That it cuts publishers out of the equation I don't, entirely? I don't know. I don't know if that you know. I get the conversation. Actually, that LinkedIn conversation that Cobus started is really interesting because there's lots of different points of view on that. Cobus asked the question: Does this mean we're just going to have another war between the search people and the publishers? And and on one level, yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, Google and Bing or Google and Microsoft um, daft. They do know that they need sources, right? And they and they want valuable quality sources. So it's going to take us right back to that conversation. Not necessarily paying for linking, but paying for <laughs> content. Paying for expertise. That's right. Yeah. That's it. The problem is already solved because if if, these, if AI. Manufacturers, manufacturers. If AI platforms then have to pay directly for use of these like premium publishers, problem solved. That's it. And also, AI has solved itself by just by just by existing. I think it comes it comes back to owning your audience again, and yeah. this is where I think like I, I can't wait to hear what Sarah's going to say, but it's going to be about owning that relationship with your audience. And, I, and I, part of me thinks, and this is only because we've never been reliant on search traffic, is that if you've got if, if it's a revenue stream, you're reliant on search traffic to provide the majority of your ad revenue. Are they actually your audience? People that find you by search and never come to you again. Like, that's not your audience. The audience are the people that come back to you. If, if, you know, they're signed up for your newsletters. They listen to podcasts. They they have a relationship with you that is not going to be affected by this. And the and the one category that we everyone's been jumping up and down and saying, oh, this is the future, is affiliate e-commerce. Mm -hmm. It absolutely blows it up. 
yeah, I was just about to say, I don't want to say cults of personality, but those, those direct relationships well, between I, humans. But it's interesting, that's what Esther raised the, the conversation that I had with Sarah. One of the things that those guys at the FT are doing is charging people, or they're testing it, they're charging people to subscribe directly to a newsletter. Mm-hmm. Newsletters driven by a personality. So in the politics, sphere, it's Stephen Bush. Um, so you're paying, I can't remember, I think it was a five or six pound a month to get Stephen Bush's newsletter. Well, you're not, you're doing that because you love Stephen Bush, right? And and that's different from, well, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up specific brands, but <laughs> I'm going to one of the radar sites. Yeah. Because it's giving me reviews on the latest laptops or the latest guitars or all the latest whatever. Um, that's a different proposition. I would just say, I, I think, though, that the, the trust thing is going to become even more mm. important here because, you know, we're talking to um, Gabby Hood at Good Housekeeping a couple of weeks ago. And if you're looking for, if you're looking to buy something like a washing machine and Google's recommending 20 washing machines, again, why on earth should I trust that when I know that I can go to the Good Housekeeping site and they yeah. have tested 10 washing machines within an inch of their life? Well, and I think those sites are already working that way. They're already trying to build, you know, good housekeepers, obviously, been doing it for 100 and whatever years. Um, but some of the more, more like, comparison sites, I think that's exactly how they're working. You log in, you've got an account, you're a, whatever, a tech person, so you buy all your tech through that and you start building up. Uh, there's almost a community aspect to it, isn't there? And I think that's just going to get more and more and more important. And we're back to that idea of brands and trust and personal mm. relationships yeah. I mean, and cross-party data and all the things that we've been talking about for if, if you're going to drop sort of five figures on a mountain bike, you, you're going to be wanting to chat to Mark Alger at a single track. You're, you're going to want to be wanting to be on their site with their reviews, talking to their people. You're not going to want Google to be like, oh, here's, here's five of the best-selling 20K bikes. Bard, t- tell me in flowery language which of these mountain bikes... I will really appreciate hitting me in the head once I've fallen off it coming down the mountain. <laughs> so I've got a question I want to pose to the two of you because uh, mm-hmm. earlier in the week I wrote an article for The Drum about whether advertisers should consider asking for discounts on AI-generated articles. Um, and one of the things that I really didn't get a chance to explore in that article is what do you think that AI-generated articles, like the ones that we saw on CNET, like the ones that we've seen at the FT, a bunch of other places going all in, are going to do to perception of that brand? Because obviously so much of how news brands market themselves is as a premium space. Do you think that knowledge, widespread knowledge, that you are you doing AI-generative articles is going to have any impact on that? I don't think advertisers can expect a discount on anything because it's not about the article, right? It's about the audience. It's about the audience. Hmm. Um, but there's another way. I would turn that on its head. Is there a premium then mm. because of the expertise that you were talking about? You know, so can publishers that have got that demonstrable expertise actually charge a premium? I think that's more like it. And, you know, the other thing, I, I'm having, we're working on a, um, we're working on a report about AI, but it's practical AI. So I'm talking to people for that. And I talked to Ellen Stoyland, Stavanger, uh, uh, and blah, I'm going to get her name wrong. And she's talking about junior football, and they use robots to produce junior football results. But it's not like, you know, you don't just plug in an Excel spreadsheet and a clever bit of tech and it spits it out. There's a whole process going on there. Mm. Where, you know, a very, she gave me an example where they talked about um, K 
kids under a certain age, so you can't name them when this, you know, they, they, they score, but you can't name them for safeguarding reasons. So you can't just have the, the, the automated process can't just say an unnamed player every time <laughs> yeah. or it just looks horrendous. Yeah. So the, so the journalists or the, or the editors have to go back and I think a clever way of doing that, you know, a, a player on the blue team, a player on the red team, find the, the kids' positions. I mean, there's all sorts going on there. It's not just plug and play on any level. So, no, I don't think it, it, it's a, I don't think advertisers should, should ever be undervaluing that content. Yeah. I, I mean, I think if someone's spitting out, you know, Garbage. Yeah, a listicle about the best types of Crocs to wear in a beach <laughs> personality <or> quiz. <laughs> yeah. So I suppose the question we have to ask ourselves now is: Do we do the full rebrand and go all in on media? <laughs> maybe no. You know what? Maybe, maybe we just all we do is transpose the A and the I oh, in that media. Is genius. Yeah. <laughs> Medi. Medi voices. Yeah. And moving on then to our news in brief. And it's bad news for anybody looking to Mastodon to act as a direct replacement for Twitter. Replacement. So with too much chaos at Musk's Twitter to discuss in any detail here, many people are understandably looking to other platforms to fill that void. But as an article on Wired makes plain, the early diaspora of Twitter users to Mastodon has not continued at the pace of those early days when everybody was looking for a lifeboat, suggesting that service is not a direct replacement. Now, I know that People who run those masculine servers would say, that's great. We don't want to be a Twitter replacement. But the fact remains that a lot of people do just want to jump ship and have something ready-made that takes its place. LinkedIn, I, baby. I was going to say LinkedIn. Yeah. LinkedIn is making a play for it. Um, okay, enough nonsense. Some sad news from DC Thompson. Big news uh, as well. Yeah, in Dundee. Employees were told at an all-staff meeting last week that the company needed to plug a £10 million gap when um, it moves to reshape its portfolio, which, you know, is kind of a euphemism for going digital. Mm. Um, but, I mean, the reality of that is 300 redundancies with 40, about 40 magazine closures. What I thought was interesting of that, I mean, this is maybe my bias, but I think that DC Thompson is a Scottish publisher, but actually half of those redundancies are likely to be uh, in Colchester at the Aceville mm. subsidiary. Thirty magazines could close with it. The, that whole site in Colchester that Aceville was closing down after they acquired it in two thousand and eighteen, which isn't that long ago. So and they're closing Platinum as well, which is the two thousand nineteen. Yeah. So that was one of the sort of first magazines for that age that launched in years. Yeah, there's all sorts going. The kids, there's some kids magazines going. I, I think there's a lot of fury about the amount they paid out to shareholders last year as well. Like, if there's a 10 million gap, then maybe shareholders shouldn't have got quite so much. Well, it's not shareholders, or is it? It's privately held. Mm. You know where the shareholders, and that's something we actually something we actually probably should have spoken about this week, is Reach, because the BBC apologised for saying that Reach publishes, well, MEN in particular, publishes a load of clickbait articles. And then I've seen some people who work at Reach come out and go, actually, you know, we do very, very high-quality local news. In the same way that, you know, Joshy Herman had a really good point about this on Twitter. It's not serving a local community in the same way that a local startup can anymore. Did you see their ads? Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was great, yeah. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that was the same thing at Reach, where they were saying, look, if Reach is struggling, it's because they're not investing in its core product and the shareholders are actually a big part of that. Yeah. Try and do a good news story. 
Good luck with that. <laughs> no, I've got some good news. Um, yeah. So, and given that we spoke a lot about this last year, and sort of we were expecting there to be a subscription slowdown, plateau, um, drop, whatever, and that actually hasn't happened. So, Fit has released their latest global digital subscription snapshot, um, which has shown that publishers across the world are actually growing their subscriptions despite, um, let's put it politely, economic challenges. <laughs> um, the NYT has seen eleven point eight percent growth across. Quarter the pioneers eighty eight point two percent, and even Substack has seen a fifty percent growth across all the newsletters it hosts. Um, local media is also resisting pressures. Um, most of them are seeing subscriptions continue to rise across newspapers all sizes. So that is a positive news story to finish the week. See, this is this takes us nicely to my conversation with Sarah at the FT. Perfect. Take us away. The research that they were were seeing was tied directly to individuals, that they had a direct relationship with the individuals. Let me drop a quick jingle in here, and then you can do your intro. (laughs) This week, I spoke to Sarah Ebner, executive editor, head of newsletters at the Financial Times. We spoke about the value of newsletters to the FT, and to the readers that sign up for them. We covered the importance of creators within those brands, and I hate that word creators, I don't know why it's <laughs> but you know what I mean, the individuals that yeah. produce the news. Not influencers. No. <laughs> and the potential for paid newsletters from those people. But first, I asked Sarah about her role leading the newsletter team at the FT. So, I mean, I head up a a small team where the job is specifically to edit, write and optimise our roster of newsletters. Um, We obviously have other journalists and teams who write are responsible for their newsletters across the business. So sometimes our involvement is very hands-on and sometimes it's a bit more arm's length looking at the data and making suggestions for improvements and optimization and things. And I head that up. So I do quite a lot of things on a kind of granular level. So I'll be looking at data for a particular newsletter, for example, or talking to the people who write that newsletter and making suggestions for improving subject lines and things like that. And I do a lot of things working across the business because I just don't think you can do newsletters well unless you're unsiloed and you work with product and tech and marketing and commercial and everyone else um, and a lot of strategy of you know where we want to go to next what other newsletters might we want to launch what other areas should we be touching um, that kind of thing so it's quite busy <laughs> well, that, that idea of the roster of newsletters at EFT that you know I had a view and, I'll, and then I went on the website and I was wrong You've got a lot of newsletters. We do have a lot of newsletters. A lot of them were set up before I came. So I've been here uh, for just under two years and I was head of newsletters at The Telegraph before that. Um, So, yeah, we have 35 newsletters. Um, 16 of them are premium. We have this two-tier... A subscription yeah. system at the at the FT and 19 are standard um, we also have some automated what I would call headline newsletters yeah. um, which I'm hoping to relaunch at some point um, so yeah but newsletters are really really important to the FT and I hope have become even more so since I've arrived um, you know we use them to acquire engage and retain subscribers so that's really key and I think anyone in the media business now knows how important newsletters are for anyone who's got a subscription or membership business. So the, the job, I'm going to use a word that I probably shouldn't use, but it's a little bit schizophrenic. One aspect of it is kind of 
content creation in, in a traditional media sense, but the other one is proper analytics. It's data and it's, as you said, it's granular. It's getting right down into weeds. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of interesting job because I've been a journalist for a long time. Um, you know, and I was a reporter and an editor and all, all those things. And in those days, you didn't really use data that much. You, I mean, you didn't really use it at all when I started out. You just wrote your stories. Um, and now you can't live without it because you need to know what's working and what isn't working. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real combination job, which is one of the things that's appealing about it, that it's, there's, it's still got journal, journalism in it. But um, there's an awful lot of other things and you can learn a lot from working with, you know, other people across the business, which you, you don't necessarily do in, in many other jobs in journalism these days. Um, but, you know, you need the support of everybody to make them work the best they can. Well, that, that's quite, uh, it's a, I want to say it's a new thing. It's a developing thing in publishing is that idea of breaking out the silos and working sort of multi-functions. Yeah. Is it still challenging do you, or is it, does it, is everyone <laughs> happy to do it? It's challenging and we're happy. Um, That's a great answer. I would like to think that I've made quite a lot of moves to break down those silos and there have been other really good people I've worked with who have done the same from their end. But I know that I've had to kind of push through sometimes and insert myself into situations where they weren't as used to having a newsletter voice there because when I came, I think newsletters were seen more of a, a very good editorial product where the head of newsletters was doing a curation job whereas i see it as as you having to do loads more to make them work you can have great editorial content but if you don't know how to find or sign up for the newsletters it's not really worth it so you have to work with people to make them easier to find big discoverability things redesigned so they're easier to read all that kind of thing so um we work well there's always more to do but i think we work pretty well do you think that discoverability issue is is one of the biggest problems that newsletters have got yeah i do actually I, I think that, and I'm not just talking about the FT, mm. I just think in general, you know, you think to yourself, oh, I've got this fantastic newsletter. I know that our readers would love it. And I think this is across the board. How do I make sure they find it? And you see people doing it in different ways. I mean, some people do pop-ups, which I think can be very distracting. Lots of people do inline sign-ups, either at the top or the bottom of an article. Um, some people do that well with intelligence. So if you've already signed up to one politics newsletter, you get offered yeah. a different one, which I think is is clever. Um, but, you know, even then, that's not quite enough. You know, where should they go on the homepage? Should they be on the homepage? Where should they be on the app? You know, so because you, you just think, oh, my God, these people would love this. Or if they love this writer, um, how do we let them know that that writer who writes a column every week also writes a newsletter? What's the best way to do that? That's also working with the marketing department, obviously. Um, you know, customer relationship management, that kind of thing. So it's there are a lot of different touch points to think about. Um, and it's sort of, yeah, that's that's an endless challenge to make sure people know how to find the newsletters. I'm not suggesting that you promote any, any other competitive publishers, but is anyone yeah. does a really good job of that discovery piece? I mean, other than you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think different people do different things well. I think the New York Times is good at pushing its newsletters and um, good homepage promotion. They do a lot of their inline signups at the top of articles. I'm not, I'd be interested to know whether that really works for them because you want the people who are engaged. So I think midway through or at the bottom is probably better. The Journal do it well, I'd like to say. I think The Telegraph do it quite well because I worked on a, a lot of that when I was there. So those are people I would say you know, who I, I think, are, you know, there's good practice going on there. What's the actual value to the reader in newsletters? What, what do you hope that readers get from them? 
Oh God, well, we, we know that the readers really value them because we get loads and loads of feedback. You know, we get loads of emails back from them. I think one of the great things about a newsletter is that direct communication uh, with a with a writer. And we always make sure you can contact them back in our in our emails, either by putting an email address in and or having a reply to email address, which I think a lot of people don't do. So we get a lot of responses from people and they love that personal interaction. They love contacting Stephen Bush and saying, oh, you've said you're coming to Edinburgh. This is this. I'd recommend you should go to this restaurant, you know, and he replies. So I think there's that interaction. But there's also, you know, fantastic bespoke original analysis and content and particularly I would say that's a real strength of the FT and in our in our premium newsletters which are truly premium you know to get Robert Armstrong telling you about the markets every day with his own spin and his own analysis is amazing but so is Martin Sambu in his weekly economics newsletter which is so high level and so valuable to people you know we get emails saying you know this is you know from very important people this is great this is really important you know you can't get this stuff unless you signed up for the newsletter. So there's a definite value proposition. Actually, it's one of my big things about newsletters that, you know, what's the value of them? There has to be a value. And whether whatever that is, that value might be I want to promote a different event in this newsletter and I know I've got a big audience or I want to promote another newsletter or I want to send you back to the site. But there has to be a value add. And, you know, there is a really so much value in these newsletters. They're really strong editorial products. So the, the value exchange there works a bunch of different ways, doesn't it? It's either you're getting the attention that you can then sell advertising on or you can sell subscriptions on or whatever it is. But then there's yeah. other ones which is actually a benefit of membership. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, there's different, as I say, different newsletters I think can have different strategies and I think should have different strategies. The idea that there's one that works for them all is is ridiculous because... They will have different aims. And in fact, our premium and standard tend to have different aims, whether they want to send you back to the site or not. But yeah, the the added value is 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 so important. And there's a sense of utility. What's the utility in, in a new not in every newsletter, but some newsletters it might be it might be what tips are in there. What can I practically do with this information? In fact, you've got me at a good time because we've just launched our first newsletter course, um, MBA 101. It's the first time we've done a, a course. It's six weeks and it tells you how to get into business school. So it's genuinely useful. It's evergreen. So you can sign up for it whenever you want. We've just launched it literally like today. Um, and a lot of work from my team, especially Emily Goldberg on my team, who's our US newsletter editor. Um, and I'm really excited about that because that is a genuinely useful thing. And it's also should go get to different audiences who wouldn't necessarily come to the FT. Um, we have really good MBA rankings on our site. So this seemed the perfect thing to tie in. And we have plans for another course later in the so year. What, what is your aim in that, in, in, in releasing that six-week course? Is it is it delivering value or is it, a, is it an advertising proposition or is it...? Well, no, it, it's, it's delivering value. It's enhancing our rankings. We get loads and loads of people coming to the rankings. So we know there's lots of people interested in business schools. Um, so... You know, this is a way to say you're interested in that. You you probably would want this. This is genuinely useful. I think it gets us FD content out to a different audience as well. Our business school content is free to read. So this newsletter is free to sign up for. So um, and I think some of, you know, there are certainly going to be people among our subscribers who will find it useful, even perhaps might have children who are applying or, you know, that kind of thing, thinking about ourselves. So it's a different thing for us and also a, a good experiment to see what we might do next in this area. Do you think that idea of expanding your readership is is something that newsletters do well I've, I've had that conversation about podcasts but i think yeah. it's also maybe true about newsletters 
It is true, and I think it depends on the newsletter and what you're trying to do, what your aim is. Certainly, um, newsletters are, I think, similar to podcasts in that. Obviously, it's slightly more challenging when they're subscriber newsletters, so you have to be a subscriber to sign up for them. You know, so, you know, the Telegraph, that would have been easier to push out newsletters that are free, but you just have to register. But we know that our newsletters, you know, our Work and Careers newsletter, for example, has brought in more women mm. readers and younger readers, which was one of its big aims. We've actually just launched something else. It's funny, we sound like we're, we're, we're right on it. But we've just launched um, individual standalone subscription-only newsletters, mm. which is a long uh, explanation of what they are. But we're looking, we're trying to get more people into the FT at different touch points. So two of our our best newsletters, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of, which are Stephen Bush's Inside mm. Politics and Robert Armstrong's Unhedged, are now available as individual products. So you don't have to have an FT subscription. You can sign up for these and you can get just the newsletter. So it's a kind of individual newsletter as a product in its own right, a lower price product. In fact, you can get them free for 90 days at the moment and then uh, move along. And and uh, and it's an experiment as a test, basically, see if people will pay for them. But we, we're pretty confident they will um, for those ones. And then do we do others and, you know, it's just a, a, another touch point for us. I think really exciting. I haven't really seen that done mm. by another another big publisher. So well, it's actually usually the other way around, doesn't it? It's a free a free sign up that's trying to get you to take a subscription. Yeah, I mean we have. <laughs> so we use newsletters for acquisition as well. When I came, newsletters were really only being used for mm. engagement and loyalty retention, and I think they're. You know, there's definitely potential at the FT to use them for acquisition, which we d we were, but in a very quiet way. And I launched a, a newsletter called Editor's Digest, which is, you know, our editor ruler's choice of stories that week. And that goes out to registrants. And that's been very effective for getting people to subscribe. So I think there is a sense of hit, you keep hitting the paywall. You might think at some point, you know what, I think I should take out a subscription or I should take out a trial or, you know, we have an offer in it every week, a half price offer for people who read that newsletter who could take out a subscription. It's been very effective. So I think there could be more of that. We did that at the Telegraph as well. We had a very good editor's newsletter that led to you know, thousands of subscriptions. Um, but obviously the price point at the Telegraph is much lower. Uh, what's the price point on Stephen's newsletter? Well, we, it's not totally confirmed at the moment, but it looks like it'll be about £6 a month. You know, we've looked at the sort of newsletters, what they sell for in that in that in that area. You know, the markets one, which is Rob's, which is premium, will be more because they're they're different types of newsletters and different types of audiences. But we have looked at the competition. Seems a good kind of. I think one of the things that I find fascinating about newsletters is just the variety of ways you can approach them um, yeah. to support whatever your your objectives happen to be, whether it's acquisition or whether it's engagement or whether it's upselling whatever it is there's always one there's always a newsletter yeah yeah i mean i just think newsletters are uh, brilliant i mean that's you, what you've sort of said is they're so versatile and they are you know they can be about different subjects they can have different aims they can engage different audience groups they can deepen engagement enhance subscriptions lead to subscriptions you know they do so many things and they can make money you know through sponsorship and advertising or leading people to the site so but as i say before you know i always think what's the value to the reader you know what are we doing for the reader here because I've been in situations where someone said, we need this newsletter, you know, this person wants a newsletter. And you think, well, I don't think the reader really yeah. needs that newsletter because we have another newsletter in that sort of area. Um, you know, you have to be careful what you're going to add to them. But, it, but also the names, you know, sometimes people love to have some kind of really funky name when it comes to a newsletter. But if the reader doesn't really understand what that is, 
it makes it quite difficult to push out. Whereas if I say to you, we've got a news set called Inside Politics, yeah. I think you could yeah, probably yeah, guess yeah. what it's about. It's what's the daftest name that someone suggests that you can say without getting into trouble? Oh, uh, no, I can't. <laughs> I can't really. I don't want to. But I, I've, I've had... We, we discussed them quite a lot. Put it this way, you know, when we were launching our crypto finance newsletter, there were lots of suggestions and we went with FT Crypto Finance because <laughs> um, I was like, please let it say what it is on the tin because it makes it so much easier to push it out. You know, if people just know what it is. Um, but I, I haven't really had many issues here with that. I had some, you know, a couple of things at the Telegraph where I wasn't convinced by the name. And, you know, you have a slight you know, conflict yeah. with the person who's writing it who really wants a particular name that you think won't make much sense to a reader. That's an age-old problem in publishing. That's been going on for hundreds of years, probably. But it's a similar thing, actually. It's in, in not similar, but there is a similar thing there with, you know, online headlines and subject lines. Yeah. So yeah. when I came, you know, a number of our newsletters also go online. And we were using the same thing for online and the subject line, whereas they're trying to do two completely different yeah. things. Online needs to be... SEO friendly, searchable by Google and very clear what it is because you're already flipping through the site and you might find it. Whereas a subject line has to stand out in your inbox and you have to make someone want to open it. So it's trying to do something quite different. It needs to be tighter or have a curiosity gap or be funny or be so you know we've been working quite a lot on that and making sure they're different one of our newest newsletters is on the fashion industry we spent a long time trying to come up with something like that so it didn't just sound like it was about fashion uh, it's really really good by our fashion editor who used to work for vogue business is really good and not fluffy um, and it's called fashion matters and i just thought it just hit what we were trying to, to do um, it took a long time to come up with that that wasn't me who came up with that i have to say i can't claim credit i mean i'm interested in the in the conversations that go on when someone or when you decide okay i need a, a new newsletter to cover this particular area what what's that process is that people bringing ideas to you or is it you going back to the editorial team so so it's both but lots of people want to launch newsletters. And as you have pointed out, Peter, we have a lot yeah. of newsletters. So I'm not desperate to launch loads more, except for spaces where I think there's a gap. Um, so I really felt, funnily enough, with the fashion one that I just mentioned, that we had the fashion journalist of the year on staff. We knew our lifestyle newsletters did really well and we didn't have one on fashion. And it seemed to me like a gap that we could fill. And there's not that much competition. There's other fashions, but not fashion industry newsletters like Lauren Wright. So uh, I went to her about that and she said to me, oh yeah, I really want to write a newsletter and it was a kind of a happy yeah. meeting. But, you know, other people come to me with some strange ideas for newsletters and I've launched a pitch document since I got there and I say, can you go away and oh, fill okay. this in, please? And it means they can think, you know, who's the audience? Where's the audience? What's the competition? You know, who's going to write this if I'm off? You know, where's the, what's the workflow? I think quite often people think about newsletters, they think the work is done when it launches and that is only the beginning. You know, the work is every day or every week and, it, and, and you have to keep promoting it and doing all those things. So I really want people to think about it and what their aim for it is and what numbers they think they might get after a few months. So I then look at that and, and I discuss with the editor and other people, you know, whether we think this is a newsletter that's, that's a go. And sometimes there's a, a commercial you know, imperative, not imperative, but there might be a commercial reason as well. They might be saying, oh, we've had a lot of people saying we'd like a newsletter on this. So I would take that into account. It wouldn't be the, the final decision, but it might come into account. And it might also come into account if they say, no, there's no way we could sell this. Um, or if I think it's going to have a tiny, tiny audience. Um, I like, I think newsletters should be niche, but, you know, I don't want something that's going to go to 500 no, people. No. How important are these names? You know, you mentioned Lauren. You mentioned Stephen before, uh, Robert Armstrong. How important is that kind of personal brand for driving success? 
I mean, that's one of the things that I think has really changed in newsletters, I'd say, in the last five years. Um, Substack obviously yeah. has had a, a big influence. I, I'm very happy with it. I mean, I think that personality and personalization, two different things are really good and important for newsletters. And personal brands certainly help to raise their profile, but they also really work on that, you know, direct interaction with the reader. They People yeah. really like knowing that it's come from a particular person. We introduced, as I think you know, uh, our reader survey last year, which has been very, very effective. And we can see from that, because people... It's a, it starts off very simply, they just rank it one to five, the newsletter, and then they we ask them open-ended questions, which is very useful. But on the ranking, we can therefore rank all the newsletters on you know what the readers think. And the, the most popular ones are all the ones with big personality. Right. So that was very interesting to us, including Stevens and Rob's, funnily enough, and Lauren's. So I just mentioned three of them. Um, but, you know, I think that newsletters with strong personalities are great. And you, you know who the person is and you get an idea of what they think about some something. And they, but they can do it in different ways. You know, I would say Robert Armstrong's newsletter is very different from Martin Sambu's on the economy, but they've both got personality. They just use their personality in different ways. Then not all the newsletters... Not all newsletters for personality need to be like, hi, look at me, I've got this great personality. They might just be, I'm an yeah. expert here. I'm giving you my authoritative voice. So, you know, Peter Foster does a brilliant newsletter um, called Britain After Brexit, which is once a week, all bespoke original content reporting. He's got the most amazing contacts and you won't get that stuff anywhere else. And we know really high up people are reading that, but he doesn't, it's not, He's not shouting yeah, about yeah. it, putting himself yeah. in it. It's just he's spoken to the people and done this reporting. But you know it's from him. So that the other side of that is there's personality, but there can be different types of personality. And some of it is just, I'm the expert. You should yeah. trust me when it comes to reading this. Um, but I think personality is great. But then I also speak to quite a lot of people. I do talks and things um, from smaller publishers. And I say to them, look, if you've got someone who's really popular and you could give them a newsletter, maybe that would work really well for you. It might be the sports reporter. It might be your film critic. But if you haven't got time to do something, you can only do one and it's going to be a kind of news roundup, that's fine. You know, just say, if you just want to send something out that says, these are the five best stories today and, we, and this is the best column, that will work really well as well. So I don't think you should get too hung up no. on it if you're worried about someone not having the time to do it. But we do have those personalities and we can give them newsletters. You still do those those curated links type things, don't you, with your, like the headlines newsletters? Yeah, yeah, we still do. And our, our morning briefing, which is, you know, very good. I mean, that is, you know, our journalists curating what they think people want to read first thing in the morning for different territories around the world. And they don't, you know... They don't. You can't really tell who's written that on a daily basis. You can just tell yeah. it's a good journalist who's written it. They don't throw themselves in there, really. Listening to you, you've had new launches going on recently. I, I kind of hesitate to ask you what's what's in the pipeline. What you're planning next? So I, we are planning another course, and I'm very excited. But I don't want to tell you what it is yeah. yet. But it's with one of our big personalities, and I think it'll be really useful. It's kind of core FT, maybe more core FT than the MBA one. Um, we've just had a of redesign and there's still tweaks and things happening with that so we've moved quite a lot of the newsletters over to that redesign but not all of them and there'll be some more things coming with that later in the year we might be launching a couple more newsletters but probably not that many maybe two or three we're always looking at them to see what we can do better you know whether we need to rethink them change things in them i'd like to put some personalization in yeah. them some modules i'd like to personalize personalized newsletters but i'm actually looking at maybe sort of having modules in them where I can display different messages to different audiences in the same newsletter. Because you mentioned upsell, funny enough, and that's something I think we could 
we could do more with, we could upsell from our standard newsletters to our premium subscription. But if we put something about that in a standard newsletter, which is also read by premium readers, it's quite irritating yeah. for them. So I'd like to be able to have different messaging. So that's something. So there's quite a lot of product support that I'm looking for, if anyone's listening, uh, from product. <laughs> we get a lot of product support, but there's always more that's needed. And I'd like to do more with acquisition. Um, so, yeah, I have quite a lot of plans and um, I probably need some, if the managing editor's listening, I probably need some more stuff. Uh, but it's all exciting because people really recognised since I've joined that the importance of newsletters and the support we're getting is really good. And we just want to reach our readers, you know, uh, in, in different ways. I'm so glad to hear you say that after we've gone and launched the Publisher Newsletters Awards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, you know what? One thing I would do want to say um, is that, I, you know, the Apple changed their, the way a yeah. few years ago, um, their stuff with open rates. And I'm very, very sceptical when I read people say we've just launched a newsletter and it's got a 75% open rate um, because they never explain what they're doing about the Apple stuff. So when you do your awards, I'd be quite aware of that because I know from being told by someone who on another award ceremony that we were the only people that mentioned the open rates and how we do them. You know, I've spoken to a lot of people and I know they're including Apple opens as part of their opens, whereas as people listening will probably know, Apple sends back as if the email's been opened, even if it hasn't, because of their priv changes to privacy. So most people are artificially inflating their open rates at the moment. So I'd be very careful of people touting open rates. We originally artificially deflated them, which was problematic, in that we counted all apples as zero, <laughs> which meant our open rates sort of went down quite a lot. And we've changed that now. And we're counting, we've got, we're one of the few people, maybe the only people who've got a verifiable open rate. So I, I like to be honest about things. Um, and we count Apple users in our sends, but we don't count them in the open rate. Uh -huh. So our, our open rate is based on Android. And we know from before the Apple changes came in that our Apple users were actually slightly more engaged. So we're probably under, you know, deflating by a tiny bit, but not that we wasn't. At least we know we can compare all our. I think people use this and they go, well, it's fine because we compare all our newsletters to each other. But actually within the industry, I'm always suspicious now when people say we've got this amazing open rate, unless they say it's verifiable in some way. So as are all verifiable, and I just would be interested in that when you do your awards. I think I'm going to be one of the judges, but not for not for anything we'll be entering. <laughs> so, but it's exciting you're doing them, and I think it's it's needed because you know there've been podcast awards and you know other journalism awards for a while, and you don't really get them for yeah. newsletters, and they're so huge yeah. for publishers and independents as well. There's some great yeah. independents writing, you know, journalists writing really good newsletters. That I read. Well, we're looking forward to it, and you are on the list for judging. You'll be getting a, a communication very soon. We've just finalised our categories. One last question for you. We always ask for a recommendation, for a media recommendation for our listeners. What, what have you got for us? Thought you might be doing this. Um, I'm not going to mention our newsletters because I've mentioned various ones of them. Um, I'm going to mention two different things. One is a newsletter that I've never heard anyone mention before on a podcast or anything else. I think people might be surprised I'm mentioning it. Um, which is from the New York Times, it's called Love Letter. And I just like it, just cheers me up. It's a, a sort of weekend read and it's all about real stories of relationships, how I met this person, oh, it wasn't love of her sight, then we got married, and then essays on love and relationships. And it's just very different. I'm sure it does really well from, from them. Um, I really enjoy it. Um, and the podcast that everyone will have heard of, but that I always listen to is The Rest is History, which um, I just really like for its way of educating and entertaining. I did a history and politics degree, so it, it fits my, my interest. And I just, I'm a big podcast fan, so so I listen to a lot, but that's one I always listen to. So those are the two I'd mentioned. The, the other newsletter I'll squeeze in is one I launched at The Telegraph, 
which was from Matt, the cartoonist. And I mentioned it in my interview. I said, why doesn't Matt have a newsletter? And they said, well, what would you, what kind of newsletter would it be? And I said, well, you know, it'd be great to know the inspiration for his cartoons, you know, what, how he comes up with them. And then Matt is a lovely guy, by the way, Matt Pritchett. Um, and I spoke to him and said, you know, I, I found out that you do six cartoons a day, but only one goes in print. Can we put another one in, an unseen cartoon in the newsletter? And he wasn't sure. And then he agreed. I said, there must be another one in the week that you really liked, but didn't make it in. So that newsletter, which is subscriber only because that's a proper, perfect example of a value add, is Matt's week. And it always has an unseen cartoon. And I still read it every week. I think it's really good. It's just a different outlook on what's been happening in the news. And it's got great cartoons in it. And it's got an unseen cartoon. So I just think it's a, a really good newsletter. On the Publishing Newsletter Awards, we've got the categories together and we will be announcing them later in the week. You can find out all about the Publisher Newsletter Awards at publishernewsletters.com. That's the URL. That is the URL. Snappy to the point. Another snappy URL is voices.media. You can go there to check out our entire back catalogue of episodes. You can sign up to our newsletter, which goes out five days a week. And you can check out our back catalogue of conversations episodes as well. But until next week, we'll be back with another uh, fascinating guest and episode, unless AI is actually taking this over, in which case you will hear the AI-generated versions of ourselves, which will be much more fun. Ta-ta! Bye.